so good, he makes you want to burn your guitar. When I watched Tommy Emmanuel, I realized that I had been coasting for many, many years. Imagine Chet Atkins with the testosterone of Eddie Van Halen. He just is part of his instrument. You can see him almost dancing with his guitar. There's top guitarists in the world, and then there's Tommy. Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 225. Currently playing at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival and sure to be a popular fixture at more film festivals to come is Tommy Emmanuel, The Endless Road, an excellent documentary that delves into the life and career of Tommy Emmanuel, one of the best guitarists in the world and, dare I say, one of Australia's best exports. Joining me today to talk about Tommy Emmanuel, The Endless Road, is the film's writer and director, Jeremy Dillon. Jeremy, I thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. G'day. It's good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. So before we go into the film, I just want to talk about a little bit about your journey as a filmmaker, because it's really interesting. Um, you graduated 2011 from your Australian Film Television and Radio School. Before that, you've already had a feature film out there. Since then, you've done a couple of documentaries, mostly um, working in the US. I'm just curious... Doing that at such a young age and being a recent graduate as well, was that just a case of going where the work is? It was really going where the characters are to an extent. Like the the trips to the US, working in the US across the two major feature documentary projects that I've directed was really about like who I was making the film about, where they were, and where the sort of, I guess you'd say, supporting characters, other people are. Um, you know, it's not wasn't a deliberate thing of like, I want to work in the US, let's find something that will take me there. It was, here's the subject, here's the project, and to make this I have to set sail over to the States. And while you're establishing your film career, you've actually got a really cool podcast up as well called My Favourite Album. Um, and it's clear from your documentary work so far, the podcast, that you have a real love for music. Um, doing a podcast based on, we've, great guest stars, and based on music. Why not do a podcast on movies, for example? You're a film graduate, you're a director. Why is it that music has taken such center stage in your life to go alongside your filmmaking work? Well, the podcast was actually sort of an outgrowth from the first music documentary I made. I made this documentary called Jim Lauderdale, The King of Broken Hearts, a few years back, and there was a long delay between finishing the film and having it come out which was due to all kinds of, like, you know, very tedious rights negotiations that I won't go into. But I got really frustrated by the fact that I'd made this project and I was sort of didn't have the control over people being able to experience it. And I thought about a podcast would be a great thing to do because it's something where I could record it on Tuesday, edit it on Wednesday, and release it on Thursday. Yeah. That complete control over the entire process. And it being about music was really an outgrowth of, you know, I think... People have this idea that musicians, like, you know, songwriters or artists or pop stars, they just want to talk about themselves all the time. And I found that really not to be the case. They like talking about their work. What they really love talking about is the music that inspired them. And that was, you know, making the Jim Lauderdale documentary. And it was true of the Tommy film as well. So many people were just really eager to talk because they weren't being asked the same questions about themselves all the time. They were getting to talk about what they love and what inspired them to make their own art. So that was kind of the angle that I took when I created the podcast. And the reason why it was about 
albums was partly because that's a great, an album's a nice structure to hang an, a half an hour to an hour long conversation across. And also just because it's a, it's an art form that I, I feel like is dying off slightly as we're entering sort of the streaming era. It's going back to being a bit more like the 50s was where it's more about the individual songs and singles. So this was sort of me sticking up for the album being an important thing and being important in a lot of people's lives. So you have the Jim Lauderdale documentary in the bag. The podcast is going great. You've got good guests. Does that all lead to Tommy um, getting access to Tommy Emmanuel and getting him to do this documentary with you? It does in a way. Um, not so much the podcast, but the Jim Lauderdale documentary was definitely a big piece of why Tommy trusted me to make this film because he actually approached me about making the film as opposed to the Jim Lauderdale film where I pitched Jim on me making a film about him. I think the lead-up to the being asked to make the film was that I had written a magazine profile on Tommy uh, for Australian Country Music magazine and his manager had really liked it. And he'd come to Tommy and said, hey, this guy who wrote the profile, he really gets you. Maybe he could be involved in some kind of documentary project, which was something that Tommy and his manager was sort of thinking about vaguely doing. And then Tommy was like, well, he made this Jim Lauderdale documentary that was really good. So the combination of those two things coming around at a time when Tommy was in a reflective frame of mind, he just had his daughter, Rachel, and I think he was starting to think about it's time to get my story down for posterity, just to start to open up about the stuff that I haven't talked about and sort of leave a proper record of the real truth behind his life and career out there. So Tommy and his manager approached me, asked me if I was interested in doing the film, and my initial thought was, like, this would be amazing, this would be a real privilege and honour to make a film about someone like Tommy, and I also thought, as a director, like, Tommy's such an incredibly visually dynamic performer, you know, he just jumps off the screen you watch a YouTube video of him performing and it's like you're there in the room watching him. But then I thought, well, Tommy's historically been a really private person. There's a lot of the darker areas of his life that he hasn't been sort of keen to go into. Like if you watch his This Is Your Life episode from a few years back, it really, they touch on the addiction stuff a bit, but it really sort of steers clear of most of the more controversial aspects of his life. So I visited Nashville and stayed with Tommy for a few days and we sort of had a bunch of conversations about, you know, different angles to take on the film and different aspects of his life where, you know, the details to me were a bit fuzzy. And at the end of it, I sat down with him and I was like, listen, I really want to do this. I'm thrilled to have the opportunity, but I want to know before we go into this process, are you going to be okay to talk about anything? Are you going to put everything on the table at this point in the process, or else I don't think I'd be comfortable doing it. If we're going into this with, you know, I don't want to talk about this, I don't want to talk about this, if it's just like an hour and a half of people talking about what a great guitar player you are, it's not going to be a very compelling film. And to his great credit, he said, I totally understand that. I don't want this to be a whitewash. I'm happy to talk about anything with you. And from then on, we just sort of launched into the project. Um, you mentioned before how Tommy very much has kept his private life just that private. His work, however, has been very prolific for a very long time, especially in Australia. I mean, he's a national treasure here. 
I remember when I was younger, seeing him everywhere on TV. Um, hey, hey, it's Saturday, talk shows, just everywhere. He was just on there. He had his guitar ready. And back then, he was doing a lot more electric guitar work than acoustic as well. When was the first time, Jeremy, that you remember seeing Tommy Emmanuel or knowing of a Tommy Emmanuel uh, when you were growing up? Well, I actually can't pinpoint a first memory of Tommy because Tommy's been in my life for literally as long as I can remember. My father was actually his agent uh, when I was growing up Um, and then later his his promoter, co-promoter of his Australian tours. So I knew Tommy sort of like very peripherally from a from a young age and was always aware and a little bit in awe of Tommy, you know, especially just like it's it's something so elemental and even with its incredible complexity and virtuosity of Tommy's playing, it's so direct and emotionally easy to understand. Like there's something in it that I could appreciate when I was like nine or ten years old and I'd be like you know, in watching a Tommy Emmanuel gig and being knocked out by it and feeling the joy of that. And obviously it's a very different experience now and a whole, you know, range of other emotions that have brought into it. But I actually can't remember a time when I didn't know who Tommy was, when I wasn't just like a huge fan of him, when he wasn't, you know, one of my favourite musicians in the world. When you speak spoke to Tommy and you urged him to open up for this documentary... And he speaks about his drug addiction. I mean, to me, this was very surprising because he was always the scandal-free musician. Around the time when he was kind of like around, you had drag and you had in excess, you had these bands and they're very much in the gossip pages. Tommy Emmanuel wasn't that guy. So when he's uh, you're interviewing him and he's very frank in his omission about his drug use that cost him two marriages and almost derailed his career many a time, are you taken aback? by the nature of his addiction and just how um, insidious that it was? To an extent. I mean, I have to say that having somewhat of an inside course on a lot of that through the years, I was a bit more clued up to his history with drug and alcohol abuse than I think your average Tommy Emanuel fan on the street because he always kept that very sort of behind the behind the screen, behind the curtain. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the, the extent of it, how severe it was, how long it went on for um, was, was kind of a surprise to me, just how, you know, we, we didn't go through every time over the years that he would, like, you know, get, get on the wagon for a little bit before off and get on the wagon a bit before off and how much, like, how many times he tried before really, like, properly, you know, coming getting into a healthy place with it all. But yeah, the extent to which that basically ruled his life and how much he was able to achieve even while he was in the thrall to that over the years was was really um, remarkable and and eye-opening. And just how much... I think the interesting thing about it is he can look back on it now and talk about it in a really self-aware way and understand how little control over himself he had all through the, the depths of his addiction. Whereas, I, I'm sure if you if we tried to make this film 20 years ago, even if he had been on a period where he was, like, you know, off, off the drugs for a few months or whatever, he wouldn't have been able to admit to himself how big a problem it had been. It's only now, with this sort of distance, being able to look back at it, he can be really frank about the, the bad decisions he made and then 
the element of which where there weren't even decisions to be made, where it was just the over, overwhelming thing that was controlling his processes. The other part of Tommy's story that I was really taken aback by was the role that father figures had, had in his life. Um, he had a very complicated relationship with his own father, which I don't want to get into because I want people to really experience that when they're watching a movie. Um, and then there is this relationship that he had with the legendary Chet Atkins. And there's kind of like almost like a poetic sensibility to it. Tommy Emanuel wrote to him when he was a child, um, expressing his love for his music. And then years later, here they are, almost like they almost have a kind of like a father-son relationship. Did did Tommy look at Chet as a sort of uh, father figure to him that kind of filled the void uh, that his father uh, left behind all those years ago? Oh, absolutely, yeah. No, Tommy very definitely thought of Chet as a surrogate father. I mean, you could probably go as far to say a replacement father. Because I think Chet was the dad that Tommy wished that he had had in a lot of ways growing up. And also partly because of the time in which Chet, as an artist, came into Tommy's life, which was around the time that Tommy lost his, his real father. Um, and having Chet's music become the sort of North Star and Chet being the guy that he wanted to emulate. And that moment when he was a kid, when he sent off a fan letter to Chet and Chet sent back an encouraging note and a photo and that really sort of propelled Tommy even though he had this real lack of confidence for so much of his early years, I think just that idea of, like, I've got to, like, get up to that level that Chet set was a real driving force. And then, you know, getting to the point where they met, where Tommy's first wife, sort of behind Tommy's back, engineered them for Tommy to come to Nashville and for them to meet, which gave Tommy the confidence to go out and start his solo career. And then as they got older over the years, um, and they got closer, Chet really falling into that father figure role in Tommy's life. And for me, that's kind of the yeah, the heart of the film, is the, is the relationship between Tommy and Chet and the cycle of parents and children, fathers and sons, that runs through the film. You know, Tommy's, as you say, without getting into some of the revelations in the film, that like how Tommy's relationship with his father sort of we recontextualise that a few times in the film with different information as it comes to light, different ways of looking at that and the sort of impact and legacy that had over Tommy's life all throughout his life and how much of what happened to him was really a result of that and then him being able to build this relationship with Chet, which was so fulfilling and important to him. Um, the the stuff about him and Chet is really, the you know, it, it feels ridiculous to kind of say this about a film that I directed, but I get really emotional watching some of those scenes in the film. And, well, it is incredibly emotional to watch as well, and I think a lot of people are going to really feel that, because I, I did as well, and it was just, like like I said before, so many just surprising revelations here, um, that being one of them. Um, you can't talk Chet Atkins without talking about Nashville. I mean, he's a guy that kind of created the Nashville sound. You've been there a bunch of times now for both this Tommy Emanuel documentary and the Gene Lauderdale documentary as well. And it's a really interesting place because it's not only a sort of kind of creative business hub for blues players and country players. I know I'm a heavy metal guy and I know a lot of heavy metal bands that are based there. They record there. 
um, it's really is kind of so, sort of like a music capital uh, of the world. You have yourself been there. What is it about that place, about Nashville, that draws so many musicians of all different types of genre, all, all different types of ilk, to want to work there and to want to uh, live there as well? What's in the water in Nashville that draws all these people into that area? Well, Nashville is Music City, USA, and I think that's important that you know you realise that's the nickname for it. It's not Country Music City, USA, as you say. There's a real diverse bunch of musicians who flock to and gravitate to Nashville, especially these days. And I think a big part of it is over the years, a lot of popular music has become more track-based, more about um, stuff being constructed in computers and loops being built on top of each other. And I think that's an incredibly valid way to make music. But if you're the kind of artist or the kind of band who's idea of music is rooted in like human beings playing together in, in great sounding studios and the chemistry you get from playing live with people on the best equipment in the best rooms, you really want to be in Nashville. Because Nashville has all the great classic studios like RCA Studio A where we filmed some of the Tommy Emanuel documentary, the Sound Emporium where T-Bone Burnett cuts most of the albums he produces, just like all the classic music that's been made in Nashville. And I think a big part of it is it's a town where you go where, I don't know if it's the majority, but like an incredibly large amount of people get up every day and they go and they contribute to the making of great music in some form or another. Whether it's you're a, a songwriter getting up, clocking in and writing songs every day, co-writing with people, you're an audio engineer going into a studio, you're a guitarist, you're a drummer, you're a producer, you're a record company person. It just, the town just lives and breathes music and you have the opportunities to make all these connections with other people who have the sort of same passion and live and breathe the making of music every day. And it's kind of, it's really unique. There's like lots of other towns that have great music histories like Memphis or Detroit or Chicago or even Los Angeles, but I don't think there's any other city in America, probably in the world, that has that big a concentration of so many different kinds of people who are just constantly and consistently on a day-to-day basis working together to make music. For Tommy, Nashville is really interesting because it's one of many places that he had to re-establish himself he was in Sydney to begin with, and then he went to America, to London, then Nashville at the end there. He's, in the movie, it's really interesting how you show how he's constantly rebuilding his fan base. And it speaks a lot to his work ethic, and world domination is the thing that he really is striving for. When you're hanging around Tommy, and he's constantly working, he's constantly got his guitar in his hand... What does that do for you as a creative person as well? Is it inspirational? Is it uh, really kind of uh, draining to be around that type of energy all the time, trying to keep up with him? What's it like being around what is essentially almost kind of like the Tasmanian tiger of the music world? He's just out there always working, always doing his stuff. What's what's that experience like? Well, it's a, it's a bit of both of those elements, really. I mean, it's incredibly inspirational. And if you're you know attuned, if you're in the right mood, being with Tommy... He puts out all this amazing, incredible, positive energy, and you can like soak it up, and it'll really like send you off. You know, like a lot of the times through the years, like like long before I was making this film, 
you know, we'd have dinner or I'd go and see him before a show or something. And it, it would just like, he gives you this like an injection of creative adrenaline and you'd walk out of a conversation with him going like, I want to do something. I want to make something. I just like, you just feel like, I don't know. Part of it is like he's, you know, many years my senior and has three times as much energy as I do on my best day um, on any given day. So that is just remarkable on its own terms. And the other part of it is, yes, it can be. It can be quite draining. Like when, you know, Jeremy, my producer, and I were on the road with Tommy for a few weeks, uh, a few years ago, you know, shooting stuff for the film. A lot of the concert stuff you see in the film was shot then. Um, Sometimes, like, we'll have had a really, you know, a long day and we'll have spent the day, like, organising the next week's filming on the phone to people and, like, booking hire cars and hotel rooms and then trying to, like, work out how we're going to stretch the budget another week to grab this extra thing we didn't know we are going to need to get. And then Tommy will go out and play this incredible, you know, two-hour show and just, like, you know, solo on stage, just, like, sweat pouring off him and just, like... And then he'll come out, get back on the bus and be, like, telling stories and, like, laughing and joking around and, like... And Jamie and I are like barely keeping our like eyelids open. It, it's just you know, it, it's really like remarkable. And and sometimes it's inspiring, and sometimes it just makes you feel really <laughs> kind of inadequate next to it. The incredible thing about Tommy's career is that even though he's been doing this from the seventies and he's established himself in so many different places, when he went to Nashville in the US, he reestablished himself as a viral musician the YouTube sensation, um, his persona and his, just his on-stage delivery kind of just lent himself to that. How taken back do you think he was that he became kind of like the guy to watch on YouTube, to watch on Facebook, um, and that he reached out not only to a new generation of people, but to a lot of different professionals as well. I mean, you were talking to lots of different interview uh, interview heads here from Steve Vai to John Petrucci to Eric Idle and a lot of them were talking about how um, their first experience of Tommy Emmanuel was watching him on the internet. I mean, that's just a really kind of crazy thing there. Yeah, and it seemed really crazy at the time when it started to happen. I think in retrospect, it seems really obvious that something like that was the missing link in Tommy's career. Like you mentioned before about every time he would move to a new country, you'd have to like start over again. But that was because people in the other country, like, moved from Australia to London. No one in London had had a chance to see Tommy Emmanuel play. So now, everywhere in the world, anybody can see Tommy Emmanuel play just by logging onto YouTube. They can stumble across him. They can get recommended a clip by a friend, and they can become huge fans without access to being able to, like, find a Tommy Emmanuel record in a record store or being able to see him live. Um... But back in the day, that didn't exist, and he would know, have all these like different areas where he would build something like gradually over time through this just relentless ethic. But it wasn't building as in the way that it should have been. And Tom, and this wasn't a deliberate strategy, the YouTube thing from Tommy's part, because when it first started happening, Tommy had no bloody idea what YouTube was. Yeah. He did this, you know, he was playing these dates in in Stockholm and the the agent kept ringing up and going like, oh, hey, we're sold out. Like, can we add another show? And can we had a early show the same day. Can we had a couple of shows the next day. And Tommy's going like, what the hell is going on? I've never been to this place before. How do all these people know who I am? So first show, he 
walks out, you know, plays a few songs, and the crowd's going nuts, and he gets on the mic, and he goes, this is great, but how do you guys know me? And the whole crowd in unison just yelled out, YouTube! <laughs> and this is, uh, I think, probably less than a year after YouTube had really become established, yeah. and he had become a sort of early viral sensation on YouTube, and then that really started to take off. And, you know, nowadays there's a whole strategy behind it, and he'll record videos especially for YouTube, and he'll occasionally he'll do requests and stuff. But it's just like he's such a visual performer as much as he is, you know, the experience of Tommy Emanuel is equally about watching him, like, create this music with his fingers. And as Eric Idle says, you have to see him do it to realise and really believe that it's just him. It's not like seven guitar players playing at the same time. Um, so being able to see that and feel the charisma and energy and passion and intensity come off him, as well as hearing the music, makes such a huge difference and was really, like, what made him shoot up another level of popularity. Well, for a lot of people out there, they're also going to have the first experience of Tommy on the big screen. Uh, Tommy Emmanuel, The Endless Road, currently at, right now available to watch at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. There's a screening tomorrow night, July 26, uh, 8.45pm at Cinema Nova. And for everyone else, you can find more information on Twitter at TEMovie at Instagram, Tommy Emmanuel the Movie, and also Facebook, Tommy Emmanuel the Movie. And I believe there's going to be a website up soon as well. And um, for everyone out there, if you, if this movie comes to your town, comes to one of your festivals, check it out. It's a great film. I thought I knew some stuff about Tommy Emmanuel. At the end, I, I knew nothing. And it's so great to watch this movie and see not only the artistry of this, what we call, what I call one of Australia's national treasures, but also the vulnerability in a personal life there as well. And uh, Jeremy Dillon, you did a great job bringing this all to the screen, man. Congratulations to you, and thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. It was a really fun conversation. Thanks for having me.